Hello, and welcome back to the Diojo Podcast. You've made it to episode three. If you're still with us, if you're one of our tens of listeners, thank you. Thank you for your listening, for your financial support. Without listeners like you, we couldn't make this uh, happen from you know uh, the Diojo Studios. But I get questions, I mean, daily. I mean, just my inbox is flooded with emails. Uh, Twitter DMs are blowing up. People are just like, what is the Diojo? They're just shrouded in mystery, right? And um, I, so I'm going to try to give a helpful allegory. Sometimes with allegories, they're helpful, and sometimes they just really break down. Uh, so I really thought this through. Um, I'm not doing this on the fly at all, so I'm sure it'll be helpful. But I believe it's about the time of the something most people are aware of, the Super Bowl. Does that ring a bell? The Super Bowl? where two football teams fight for national preeminence in the National Football League, you know, for the bragging rights and the trophy. What it was this year, it was the Kansas City Chiefs and the uh, San Francisco 49ers. So if you're from the Northwest like I am um, and you root for the Seahawks like I do, then you can't stand the 49ers. Uh, I, I grew up on the West Coast, so I was in California at the time when the Niners with Joe Montana and Jerry Rice were... Um, predominant, uh, very dominant in the in the league, and this year I think everybody's happy to root for somebody other than the Patriots. And then it's going to be odd to see Tom Brady uh, being the quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So, um, <clears throat> anyways, get back on track. Around the time of the Super Bowl, if not at the Super Bowl commercials, which even if you don't like football, most people love the commercials. QuickBooks launched a series of ads with. Cobra Kai Sensei John Kreese, I believe his name is pronounced, the actor Martin Cove, you know, according to Wikipedia. But uh, he's, you know, one of the reasons he was so wound up was that he didn't have a tool like QuickBooks. And now he has QuickBooks. He's rebranded as Koala Kai. Um, I, I thought those commercials were hilarious. Um, you know, if you know your audience is 90s kids, you know, that are uh, starting businesses and those kinds of things, then um, that's great branding. Um, you know, kudos to them for tying those things together. But um, so you have the dojo, right, where people practice martial arts, where they learn and practice martial arts. And what was the saying in the Karate Kid? Fear does not exist in this dojo, does it? No sensei. And then pain and defeat do not exist. No sensei. And, um, you know, that's we, we know that's not true, especially in business. There's a lot of fear right now is a time when um, you may not be fearful, but it's definitely um, got a lot of people concerned. You know, how long, um, you know, from a, from a health standpoint, from a financial standpoint, you know, what are the things we need to do to stay healthy and also um, keep things moving forward? A lot of tough decisions. Um, you know, on personal and professional levels, and then pain. Uh, those of you like myself that survived the uh, the downturn in uh, 2008-2009, you know, some of us felt that pain more than others. Our industry, quote unquote, is uh, recession proof, but uh, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have impacts on you know our psyches and um, our level of comfort and our operations and our employees and all of those things and then defeat um, you know if you're an entrepreneur and you haven't tasted defeat you know then um, not to sound too ominous I guess it's it's coming right I mean most of us 
Most people that reach some level of success, it's born out of pain, um, you know, working through fear, having not necessarily not having fear, but working through it and then um, rising through your defeats. So, um, you know, I did write an article on that. It's on my website, Intro to the Diojo. Um, Michelle Blevins was very gracious. Uh, I did an interview with her when we launched the Intentional Restorer the end of last year, there's a there's a video interview on Restoration and Remediation magazine. And then one of our friends, um, Jarrett Steer, he's got the GMS podcast. And I believe, let me look real quick. Yes, I was on episode five titled Skill and Luck of the GMS podcast. Jarrett uh, had recently just moved to the Seattle area and um, we we filmed, recorded from the Three Kings Environmental uh, Studios there in Sumner, just outside of Tacoma, Washington. And that was a fun time. I think that was in January. Um, and and uh, he's been great. I've reached out to him, asking him some points and tips on tools that he uses for recording his podcast. And he's been very gracious and actually sent a text the other day that uh, he was listening and excited for for the launch. Um, if you are in property restoration or an entrepreneur construction, check out uh, the GMS podcast and check out the GMS distribution boxes. I know uh, when I was managing a team in Seattle, you know, you go into these units and you can't get enough power for your drying equipment. And his box, rather than the traditional ways, get a spider in. You know, you have to have an electrician pop the panel and, and tie it all in. His box, I think it was, uh, I was talking to Luke from Aramsco, Luke, and uh, he told me about this unit where you, it comes with a bag, it comes with the unit, it's lightweight um, and durable, but you can plug it into, and there's multiple heads in there, plug it into either behind the range in the kitchen or the dryer outlet in the utility room and you can get a whole new patch of power for your drying equipment um, which is critical uh, to help in you know homeowners or um, you know a lot of our work in Seattle was in apartment complexes and so that really was able to uh, increase the amount of power we were able to get into a unit and I told our team guard that thing with your life because um, uh, it was awesome so check them out uh, that was an unpaid endorsement just because uh, I, I do really respect him as a person and um, their company and, and the product uh, speaks for itself. Um, but as we get into this, um, I did want to talk about two. Um, uh, I recently, first article published with um, claims pages, Fortnite and the incoming insurance workforce. Um, I don't know if you have kids or friends that play Fortnite, but uh, anyone that wants to be... Um, detrimental towards the to speak detrimentally towards the millennials and Generation Z, you know, as far as their ability to be motivated and to collaborate, uh, video games are a thousand times more complex than when I was a kid. Um, and you know, the amount of in Fortnite, you got to build on the fly, run the map shrinks, you got to adapt to your different weapons, adjust, you know, recharge, and it's all happening in a limited time frame. With um, and with other people coming at you, you know, not just fighting against, um, not just fighting against, you know, the the computer players, and so it's crazy how complex it is. And so, I'd encourage you if you're having trouble with um, younger people and trying to understand them and motivate them, and um, incorporate them into your team, you know, 
millennials like that it's a tag that gets used a lot but you got to take that out of your vocabulary it's young adults that is the workforce and it's the majority of the workforce and you know uh, i tied that into insurance and then property restoration has similar statistics if you're not hiring young people your workforce is aging out you know you're gonna lose that opportunity to mentor people uh, and i have always found if you get people that are honest hardworking, and willing to learn and teach them your system um you know, and that, that ties into the purpose of the Diojo, right? It's, uh, it is fairly linear to teach somebody the skills needed to be technically proficient in our industry. Uh, you can do that. I was able to do it. I know a lot of my friends aren't the smartest people in the world, uh, you know, by their own admission, and, and we were able to be proficient in it. And so you can learn those things. You can learn base and 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 moderate level, you know, psychometrics and how to navigate the property, you know, the multiple assets of the property restoration world. But leadership is an area so many people get thrown into positions of leadership with no mentorship or training or expectations. And so a lot of people are making it up as they go. I was fortunate to have good mentors early on. And that's what um, really my hope is through the Diojo, through writing, speaking, you know, engaging and, and now through this podcast that uh, we share some of those, uh, like I like to say, is shortened learning curve for people that um, are interacting with others. That's the hardest part is, you know, working with other people, understanding who you are as a leader, you know, um, being clear in your identity and, and chasing your purpose and then translating that to helping and motivating other people so that your team can thrive. So enough about me. Um, let's get into this. Uh, we've got Edward H. Cross, the restoration lawyer. Uh, he sat down for three questions and, um, uh, I want to touch on his background, but, uh, not go too in depth because we've got later on, I believe it will be the intentional restorer for May. That'll drop the second Friday of, I'm sorry, April. We're, we just started April. Uh, be a longer form, kind of the background of Ed and and his involvement in the um, origins of the RIA, the Restoration Industry Association's Advocacy and Government Affairs Committee. Um, uh, really interesting story. Um, we'll get into this with Ed just in a in in a in a small manner, but uh, pretty interesting how his career. Um, in property restoration, I, I think the restoration industry owes a debt of gratitude to Alice Cooper. Ed was actually a drummer and tried out in 1989 um, to be Alice Cooper's drummer. And the way Ed tells it, uh, he was he thought he had the gig. He had really good feedback from Alice Cooper. Alice um, thought that maybe he had broken the drums. You know, his passion was just getting after it. And the manager told him that he thought he had done uh, really well and, and was a front runner. And then that was two agonizing weeks of just waiting by the phone and, and it didn't happen. And so um, we'll get into some of that, uh, like I said, in a later interview. But uh, today's topic is more some of the legal implications of uh, cleaning and restoration companies responding to COVID-19 and coronavirus um, type cleaning. Um Ed has been hard at work putting together service contracts, um, and, and he's going to get into that. I want to save my closing comments so I don't spoil it. Um, but uh, So give a listen. 
um, it's one piece of that puzzle in you know deciding how you're going to approach um, this issue and um, if you're going to position your, your team and your company to provide those services something to consider is definitely the legal implications <laughs> All right, uh, Ed, thank you again for agreeing to jump on a call with us. Uh, I know, what's that? Thank you. Yeah, um, I know you're, uh, uh, how do we say, elbows deep in uh, helping contractors respond to um, common sense approaches to this pandemic. And um, many of our peers in uh, property restoration are on the front lines of trying to help businesses um, get ahead of. Um, of a proper response to COVID-19, the coronavirus. Yes. Um, so we wanted to take some time to jump on, obviously your area of specialty is law. You are the restoration lawyer. Um, and so what that looks like from a legal standpoint that uh, what contractors should be looking for. Um, so just to give people a, a quick uh, summary of your career in law and as it intersects with property restoration, um, your initial introduction to the industry was actually when your career started, correct? In California in the, in the mid-90s, your yes. first client was um, a homeowner who had been um, negatively impacted by uh, a restoration contractor's poor workmanship. And that became one of the first uh, six-figure settlements for uh, a mold case in California, correct? Yes. So you, your initial introduction to property restoration contractors in the industry was on the other side. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we handled hundreds of those. Yeah. And yeah. contractors started inviting me to their conventions and they asked me to give presentations as to what they needed to do so that I would not sue them. Yeah. And I met the presentations and they started offering me work, which I eventually accepted. And that's how we ended up here. And, and a lot of that was centered around uh, microbial growth and, and, and the negative impacts of that. Big yeah. part of it, yes. Yeah. I got very interested in the scientific side of it and I took an examination and earned a certification as a certified indoor air quality professional. Yeah. Maintain that certification anymore, but uh, learned a lot. That was through AEE, they have an excellent program. AEE. One, well, and so 95, you're getting into law, you have this case, 94, IICRC comes out with the first S500, correct? You're, and, you're quizzing me on the year that the first edition of S500 was released, John? No, I'm not, I'm not trying to quiz you, I'm just, you know, timeline, I think if I remember correctly, S520 that deals with mold didn't come out until 99, so several years later, Right. Um, and you had involvement with um, with both of those, correct? Yes, I did. Yeah, the second edition of S five hundred and the first edition of S five twenty. S five twenty. So, so you you pivot rather quickly uh, to um, now representing lawyer, uh, uh, lawyers, representing contractors, and you've been doing that for nearly twenty five years now. Um, you've been dubbed the restoration lawyer, um, and. Uh, I remember reading uh, one of your early presentations to then what R it, what RIA Restoration Industry Association was, was the ASCR, right? In 2007, they changed to RIA. Um, 
and so um, so that was a significant change. You're, you were involved in that time when things were really churning and changing. And now, fast forward to 2019, you're involved in another uh, significant transition in the history of the industry and the RIA in particular. Um, so what, 2019, Mark Springer, who's the president-elect, uh, releases his document or manifesto, Our Greatest Need, which lays out a seven-step plan. Right. And, um, and, and out of that, uh, the um, Restoration Industry Association Advocacy and Government Affairs, or the AGA Committee, um, is a result of that. And you were named as the founding chair, correct? Correct, yes. So um, can you give people just maybe a, a quick snippet of you know, how that all went down and, and, and how you became involved uh, in that process? Yeah, sure. I received a call from RIA saying that they wanted to um, dedicate an emphasis to advocacy on behalf of restorers because things were really starting to change, particularly with respect to insurance claims. Yeah. And they felt like they weren't getting a fair shake from standardized pricing platforms, from third-party building consultants, and TPAs. Yeah. And they wanted to get organized and speak with a unified voice. and the goal of the AGA is to achieve a fair and level playing field for restoration contractors. Yeah, and that's the, well, that's actually the, uh, what the hashtag for the the upcoming conference, right? The fragmented no more. Fragmented no more is the theme, yeah. Yep, <clears throat> and so, um, and, and uh, as we fast forward um, rather rapidly, you know, just with less than a year's time, right? Um, you're now named the, so you're the chair currently of the of the AGA committee, the founding chair, and you've also been named the uh, restoration contractor advocate. Yes. And how how is that? I guess briefly, how is that different? Um, how does that it adds to your duties uh, with the AGA? But uh, what is the emphasis of the restoration contractor advocate? The restoration contractor advocate's position is to uh, pursue and campaign for the positions adopted by the Restoration Industry Association on controversial issues with the goal of achieving a fair and level playing field. Yeah, yeah, which is, I mean, kind of putting teeth to the plan, right? Yes, exactly, executing um, on the plan. And yep. the ADA collects the information, does the research, and formulates the positions, and yep. then I go out and try to broker deals to bring those positions into reality. Yeah, yep. And so, um, so this is, you're doing all of this, and then um, you also, uh, we have this uh, outbreak in, the, uh, in our nation and globally, and uh, so restoration contractors are gearing up. Um, the RIA uh, recently did the town hall um, which has some excellent information for multiple uh, industry professionals on considerations for responding. So we want to get to that meat of, of, of what we want to talk about today is, um, you know, the relationship between a COVID-19 and um, uh, the legal standpoints of that. And so I was thinking about this. It's interesting. So even prior to this outbreak, I know you've given several um, resources and um, webinars and those kinds of things on contracts in general. And it's a little bit surprising that, you know, we're in 2020 and that's still 
um, a challenge for some uh, contractors to protect themselves in that way. And so just in a general standpoint, even before COVID-19 becomes an issue, what would be, you know, maybe one key thing that contractors need to stop doing with regard to their contracts and one thing they really should start doing, you know, just contracts in general? Well, strangely to me, John, a lot of restoration contractors are still using traditional work authorizations. Yeah. And by traditional work authorization, I mean a one-page form that states that the property owner authorizes the contractor to come in and perform some work to return the property to its pre-loss condition. And the insurance company is directed to name the contractor on a check. Yeah. Uh, and they should stop using those. I like to say that performing restoration work with a traditional work authorization is kind of like playing football with sandals on. <laughs> you could do it, yeah. but it's not going to turn out very well. Would it what be, they, uh, it's not even, um, my kids have the Crocs and when you put the strap yeah, down, that's right. game mode or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not even game mode. Right, it's not even game mode. I'm sure I said that wrong, but. Yeah, so what they should start using is payment contracts, actual contracts that look similar to a construction contract where there's an obligation by the owner to actually pay the contractor for the work. And I understand that a lot of this work is paid for by insurance companies, but the best practice in my quarter of a century of experience is to have a contract provision that holds the customer personally responsible for any amount that the insurance company is not going to pay. Yeah. Some companies have very successful business models that are strictly based on accepting whatever amount of money the insurance company is going to pay and that works for them. I think that's risky. Even yeah. if that's your business model, you always have to collect the deductible because that's necessary to trigger coverage. Hmm. Whereas some contractors try not to or, yeah, I know um, you practice law in California. I know they always kind of set the early precedents and um, you've talked at other times about some of the things that are going to be coming out of California that probably soon will affect all states. Um, right. And so, um, so in, in now transitioning from just contracts in general to the COVID response, um, in the town hall meeting, uh, I felt like you had a really good uh, quote, you know, and it's a, it's a generic one, but the haste makes waste, right? Yes. Where if we rush into something, and I've, I've talked to several peers in the industry um, and some companies are going gung-ho and some companies are really holding back. But um, I know for me, that's a challenge when you have a client that you do the majority of their services and they legitimately need help in implementing, um, you know, some kind of response. Um, some people could see that as opportunistic, but, you know, we're a service-based industry and this is a period of need. Um, so what have you learned from a legal standpoint about setting your company and your team up for success and those considerations before a team responds? I guess that employer relationship and responsibility from a legal standpoint. Yeah, so there's a lot of homework that needs to be done in order to embark on one of these projects successfully. And it's a real challenge because right now there's so many unanswered questions. So what I'm telling everybody to do is to try to stay abreast of the information 
as it's coming out, uh, yeah. pay particular attention to respected uh, authorities, CDC, WHO, and the others regarding the way the disease is spread, uh, what happens to the virus after a period of days, and uh, with a special focus on worker safety. That always needs to be the number one priority for employers. Yeah, yeah. And I know, um, I, I think we talked a bit offline, you had mentioned that, um, I think that's, uh, I've talked to other contractors in the area and that's, you know, they're calling L&I and trying to, you know, what are the workman's comp implications and those kinds of things. And then it was brought up in the, uh, the town hall too, considering if you're not properly protected, what potentially, which is the same thing we deal with with mold, even though this is very, very different. You know, if you aren't following the proper protocols, you could be, you know, affecting people at home and those kinds of things. And so while they're very, very different, there's some, some overlap in, in how we need to respond. Um, yes. And there's no protocols yet, you know, as far as I have seen from like the CDC and those kinds of things. So um, when I spoke to you the other night, uh, you were, you know, I think you said you've been working basically dawn to dusk and, and beyond on um, contracts as uh, contractors are trying to uh, respond. Um, and I know those people you've been, uh, you've been dealing directly with, and then also, um, put out some contract resources for, uh, restoration contractors. What are you seeing as far as recommendations for contract language and how to message to clients and set up proper expectations right. uh, from that legal standpoint? Well, you know, when I embarked on this, I had no idea how vast and how complex the problem was going to be yeah. and how many potential legal issues there are. Uh, but it's really, really very extensive. And normally when I sit down to draft a contract, I want to try to keep it on the short side. Sure. When we're working on a commercial contract, we've got a little bit more leeway to make them a little bit longer. But by the time I ran through all of the different areas where contractors are exposed and facing serious risk with this, it turned out to be a very extensive yeah. contract. And so one of the first points right off the bat is to try to get a very clear vision as to what your value proposition is to your customer. What is the customer getting for the money? And we don't want to just take customers' money for the sake of taking their money. We want to make sure they're getting some benefit out of it in the process. But this is not like mold, where we can take a picture of a wall that has mold on it and then remove that section of the wall and replace it and then take another picture to show that the mold has been carried out of the building. We can't right. do that with this. You can't see it, smell it, hear it, touch it, photograph it. And this, unfortunately, is going to create an opportunity for bad actors to enter this industry and, and claim that they have done work to eradicate the COVID-19 virus and not really have much in the way of information to back up that they've done it. Yeah. And um, at this point, I'm aware of no certifications or licenses that are available to show that somebody is qualified to do this work. And there's a considerable amount of controversy in the industry about the proper methods to address it, what products to use and uh, what techniques to use in applying those products. 
and restorers are unfortunately going to be judged by this when the inevitable hurricane of lawsuits comes from all of this yeah. by hindsight they're going to sit down and look at a file and look at the results of a project and these people the the monday morning quarterbacks if you will are going to have information that's not available to contractors now before they embark on one of these jobs and so one of the challenges is going to be for the contractor to to establish evidence about the limitations of the available information at the time the job was performed. It's yep. not the standard of care, obviously, to perform work according to the level of some technology or some science that has not yet been developed or discovered. Yeah. But if you don't have something clear in your file about what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, where you're doing it, then you're running into trouble. And so when we talk about documentation, we want to have a file set up in a way so that a third party looking at the file years later who has no knowledge of the background of the job and does not have eyewitnesses available to interview can understand the who what where when and why of the job and basically recapitulate the main events of the project simply by reading the file and unfortunately a lot of restoration contractors are not as diligent as they could be about creating that sort of documentation Fortunately, in the era of TPAs and TPCs, they're being forced to create a lot of that documentation and that, that protects people. But I'm not going to get off on my complaints about TPAs and TPCs yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's obviously that's uh, what the uh, AGA is trying to, those are some of the key focus areas, right? The TPAs yes. and TPCs so, uh, and pricing in general. So, well, Ed, I, I wanted to keep this brief and... Um, I appreciate that. I know there's the resource with the, the town hall at RIA um, and, you know, uh, industry outlets are releasing more information as we learn more. And like you said, the, uh, the government entities that are tasked with this, I mean, everybody's learning to respond to it together. Um, and I know at the upcoming RIA conference, um, which they just released an announcement saying they're still planning on moving forward, barring them being unable to do so uh, by some edict. Um, and you're planning a session dedicated to COVID-19 response um, at, the, at the conference. And then you've posted uh, the resources for contractors on your website, correct? Uh, the edcross.com backslash COVID-19. Um, do you want to talk about that resource a little bit? Yeah, sure. It's um, edcross.com. Uh, forward slash COVID dash. Maybe the wrong slash. But, it, but if you just go to edcross.com, it's very obvious there. You have COVID, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, what I created was a coronavirus service contract, a, a standardized coronavirus service contract, and it contains some pretty extensive instructions and guidance material uh, that goes along with it. And this is not, like I said, uh, some simple one-page document. And I did my level best working together with a team of four other people who all have very different types of skill sets uh, to refine this thing and address a number of the key vulnerabilities that restorers face going into these projects. And if you pull out your standard contract that says you're going to return the property to its pre-loss condition and you use that for yeah. a COVID-19 project, that could be problematic. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, thank you, Ed. Thank you uh, for uh, your work as a restoration lawyer and with the AGA. And uh, I'm sure as you learn more, um, you've been active on social media and those things, sharing what you're learning and, and the resources. So um, thank you for taking the time and, uh, uh, you know, get some rest and uh, keep doing good work. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, John. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, that's a wrap on the Diojo podcast, episode three. We made it together. Thank you for listening. Um, and thank you to Edward H. Cross, the restoration lawyer, for uh, sharing his unique insights on <clears throat> you know, nearly 25 years of representing restoration contractors from a legal standpoint and um, you know, definitely helping people navigate this new uh, normal as it relates to COVID-19. Um, so some of you might say, well, what does Ed do? <laughs> I would retort, what doesn't Ed do? So he's the president of the Edward H. Cross and Associates legal firm, um, also you know known as the restoration lawyer, as we've said multiple times. He is the chair of the RAA's AGA, that's the Restoration Industry Association Advocacy and Government Affairs Committee. He's the chair, the founding chair, and uh, recently recently was named the Restoration Advocate, which is part of Mark Springer's, um, you know, basic seven-step plan for how RAA is going to execute on their vision of advocating for the property restoration um, industry. So. <clears throat> You can uh, catch up with Ed via his website, therestorationlawyer.com. Um, you can check out the RAA website. They've been doing regular town hall meetings to um, help restoration contractors navigate uh, the COVID-19 you know, best practices as we continue to uncover those puzzle pieces and understand them. RIA and A I'm sorry, RIA and IICRC. IICRC released a joint statement on, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of approaches to COVID-19 and coronavirus cleanup. And, you know, Ed talked about haste makes waste. I think that really stands out. Um, it's tricky because we can't, in positions of leadership, you can't wait too long. You have to uh, be on the front lines. You have to make decisions with the best information that you have possible. And um, when you're doing that, you have to make sure that you're protecting your team members, protecting your clients, and then clarifying, as Ed said, that value statement. You know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? And that's always been the case. We should always be thinking, what are we doing? What value are we providing? And then how are we going to do that safely for ourselves, our employees, and our clients and our organization, how are we going to protect all of those entities in collaboration with the client, you know, especially on insurance claims, the carrier, the client, and the restoration contractor. It should be a relationship, right? Everybody's got responsibilities and clarifying those, you know, and so whether it's directly responding to COVID-19 or indirectly, you still have to account for that exposure, you know, in the construction world, we you know, in the restoration world, oftentimes it's uh, the site, um, you know, job site safety evaluations and the pre-task plans, those kinds of things in construction. 
there's a lot of the site-specific health and safety plans, and too often those are boilerplate, right, where um, we just have them, we kind of glance over them, and, and uh, so hopefully that'll be a positive thing that comes out of this where we think through those items much more thoroughly, whether you're an estimator, business owner, project manager, or site foreman, or even a technician, you know, thinking, okay, what are we going to do to do this safely? And, um, you know, my restoration in, in mold remediation, you always were thinking about, um, you know, not taking it home with you or asbestos abatement, right? That's the worst, you know, exposing your family because you didn't do uh, proper PPE donning and doffing and decontamination procedures, you know, after the fact. And so, you know, thinking more about are you washing your hands? Are you taking your PPE off properly? Are you wearing your PPE properly? Um, are you cleaning your vehicles? You know, you're carrying that stuff in and out, um, even if you're following the best practices. You know, just taking extra steps. So stepping our game up, you know, from top to bottom to to provide a better service and to protect ourselves more um, can be a very positive thing moving forward, you know, kind of waking us up to um, that unknown and unseen. So be safe out there. Continue to do good things. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Diojo Podcast. Okay. I'm glad to see you brought Frank today. Yep. I knew you. And he's got his PPE on, so <laughs> no respirator. But Ah, okay. Um, I've got it. Rec I've got it set up on Zoom, and it's recording now. I set it up to where every time I turn it on, it records. Um, so, <laughs> which I th I thought I had that last time. So